0: this question that a lot of my interns come up with at some point that she's like, what am I actually doing? How am I actually helping people?
1: Hi, and welcome. This is the Collaborative Family Health Care Association's official podcast, the Integrated Care Podcast. Thank you for joining us once again. My name is Naftali Serrano, I'm the executive director, um, and I'm joined today by my uh, partners in crime. I'm going to let them introduce themselves today, starting with Deepu George. Deepu, say hello to
2: folks in podcast world.
3: Good morning world. I am Deepu George, all the way up from the Rio Grande Valley, and we are excited to get this conversation going
2: today.
1: Awesome. All right. And Jeffrey.
2: Jeffrey Ring, health psychologist and consultant with Health Management Associates. So happy to be here all together, just back from having seen you and Eftali live in person at uh, NatCon in D.C. Um, such a refreshing change from this uh, virtual collaboration. That was fun.
1: That's right. And we're, we're happy to have Jeffrey. Jeffrey took a little uh, uh, hiatus, but his voice was much missed on our podcast. So thank you. Good to see you, Jeffrey. And Grace.
0: Hello, Grace Wilson here, I'm behavioral medicine faculty at Great Plains Family Residency in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where we've had a little bit of rain, but it is a beautiful morning this morning, so really excited to be joining you guys again today.
1: Yeah, awesome to have uh, the team back now. Amber, Amber Gordon, um, uh, who's usually with us, is not able to be with us today, but um, you know, you. Surely we'll hear from her in future podcasts. So we've got a jam-packed podcast today with a a great topic. We're going to be talking about um, uh, the models of integrated care uh, and and some of the implementation factors related to it. Before we do that, of course, I feel compelled to remind you guys about our conference coming up in October, um, October 18th. Uh, in Rochester, New York. If you want to learn more about our conference and hear more voices, like the voices you're hearing on today's podcast, uh, you can go to integratedcareconference.com and uh, get early information on it. Um, I will tell you that we will soon have uh, our uh, concurrent session selected. In fact, guys, I am sitting down with the uh, the conference planning committee tomorrow, actually, um, for hours and hours <laughs> um, <laughs> to, uh, to go through the final selection process for our concurrent sessions. Uh, we had 150, I think it was 154 uh, sessions to review. Uh, we're only going to be able to select probably about, at best, half of those uh, sessions wow. for the conference. And I can tell you, having gone through the, the sessions myself, it's going to be a really difficult difficult set of choices so many awesome topics and so many awesome presenters everything from you know folks talking about nitty-gritty aspects of MAT implementation medication assistant treatment uh, folks talking about interprofessional education is um, uh, uh, sort of training uh, medical professionals and behavioral professionals side by side to folks working on care management schemes and complex patients. And it's just, um, it's fun to see, but it's also going to be kind of stressful. But it means that soon you'll have uh, a good idea of what the the sessions at the conference are going to be like. So check integratedcareconference.com for that. Um, we also have finalized, although I'm not at liberty to disclose yet, we finalized our plenary speakers. And, Ooh. and... Uh, Yes, so the folks, and especially, um, you know, I know my podcast team friends here, you guys are going to be excited. Um, I'll whisper it to you after the podcast is over, and I'll let you know (laughs) who, so you get a sneak peek. But, uh, so we finalized those, and um, it's, let me just say that, A, I'm excited because it reflects diversity, and it reflects uh, aspects of social justice and reflects wow. really current trends in, in what's going on in healthcare. So it's gonna be pretty cool. So we'll do some unveiling around that, probably by by, by the time of our next podcast, certainly, but you can check integratedcareconference.com for all that um, information in the coming month. So exciting, exciting stuff. All right, so as is our uh, typical MO, we usually start with news items and so Let's get going. This is our Integrated Care News for the month. Grace, why don't you start us off?
0: Sure, so I um, recently heard about something going on in the legislature. I know I've talked before about one of the big barriers for some uh, providers of behavioral health, like MFTs, like LPCs, is billing Medicare. Um, And that's a big challenge for integration because it really reduces the available workforce that we can put into these roles. So there is another effort um, to try to change that, and this time it's linked with the opioid crisis. So Representative Vern Buchanan out of Florida has introduced in the House of Representatives the Opioid Emergency Response Act. And this is a bipartisan effort that pulls in several different pieces of legislation um, that were already existed. Uh, Some of them are already in existence, some of them are new, Um, and it's like seven different points to the plan, I think, that are intended to try to help address some of the problems that our country is having with opioids. Um, So two or three specific pieces that I thought would be interesting to our listeners is it does include that House Bill 3032 that's supposed to um, expand the billing providers for Medicare, Uh, but then it also... Uh, funnels some additional resources to NIH research um, on opioids and addiction. And then as is- directs the VA to study the link that may exist between opioids and veteran suicides. So there's a lot of different aspects of this act that have potential to have big effects on integration, on our treatment, and really kind of that whole health perspective. So just tracking along with that, trying to see how it moves through and um, always kind of excited to share those developments.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, And thanks for bringing that up. Uh, Yeah, we we will likely be coming out with a supportive statement for that House bill, just like we've done for previous bills, uh, expanding eligibility requirements for Medicare, uh, for LMFTs, um, now LCSWs. So yeah, super duper cool stuff.
2: All right, Uh, Jeffrey, what's your news item? Yeah, well, my news item connects very much with what we just heard. This idea of how can we think uh, in an integrated way about addressing a chronic pain without just starting with opioids and pharmacological interventions. Um, This team, uh, led by Dr. Beverly Thorne and colleagues, has published an article in the April 3rd Annals of Internal Medicine that is so extraordinary, I just wish I could kiss each of them on the forehead. I'm so happy to read about this. Chronic pain is defined as something that lasts from three to six months, um, and it's uh, of higher prevalence in minority communities. So Dr. Thorne and her colleagues decided that they were going to take on this challenge, they were going to see about talk therapy modified for health literacy levels and literacy levels um, for chronic pain in disadvantaged populations specifically, right? This takes on health inequities and health disparities and communities and high-risk groups. So what they did was they modified um, cognitive behavioral therapy and a pain education um, modality in this randomized clinical trials study. And they found that... um, that both the modified CBT and the pain education were in fact, hooray, associated with improved pain in patients um, from these disadvantaged backgrounds. They found that um, the, uh, uh, where's my note here, Um, that after therapy, um, uh, they showed long-lasting improvements in the education group, um, and, and physical functioning was improved for both those in the CBT and the educational group as well. These were 10 weekly 90-minute sessions. There were about 300 folks in the study and the outcomes should be shouted from the rooftop and have such great implications for us and the work that we do. What it means to work shoulder to shoulder um, in a primary care clinic or a hospital setting and to be able to bring the richness and smarts. So, um, so anyway, for all of those reasons, I was really happy to bring this uh, news item to all of you today.
1: Awesome. Um, I'm sure none of us, none of the rest of us, uh, have actually seen chronic pain patients in our work in primary care, right? is <laughs> So a zebra, rare. Really rare yeah. So rare. So it's yeah. good somebody's paying attention to this group. Yeah. That's no. Great. I, yeah. There's there's so much attention being paid to this, and and for good reason. And what's nice is, as you're pointing out, Jeffrey, it just it provides a, it allows us finally to highlight. Hey non-pharmacological options work. They're better. They have better uh, long-term outcomes. Uh, So uh, it's really been interesting in the last few years to finally get some traction in that area.
2: Um, Yeah. Well, this data um, helps us move forward the dialogue on a national level, of course, but also in our local clinics, right? When we're talking with our physician and medical colleagues and, and patients as well, where there's been a kind of a you know, a history of skepticism, and, and that's, you know, all good. But, um, wow, to have the shiny data is a um, beautiful and enrichment to the conversations we can have about how we want to approach treatment.
1: Plus, uh, plus the, the, the way the research was done, taking into account health literacy and um, uh, really targeting underserved groups, to me, is a big plus there. I've seen way too many... Sort of ivory towerish research designs that just don't feel applicable to uh, some of the settings that need this care the most. And so, kudos to the researchers for really, really um, focusing in on that subgroup and making an effort to tailor the intervention in a way that's really real-world applicable. All right, Deepu, you're
3: up. It is my turn. All right. Uh, so, going off of both of those, I've been following the um, the Opioid Emergency Response Act, and in fact, I've been in touch with our local congressman and his office through our university's government relations, and I have sent him upda- updates. I've sent him the specific news updates from AMFT, and they said they are working on it and they will present it to the congressman personally. So, I'm gonna. Uh, Wait and see what that leads to. So I've been following on what they're doing. So the Senate Finance Panel's opioid hearing will focus on changes to Medicare and Medicaid. And in the morning consult, if you go, they receive specific documents uh, sent by the Senate committee staff to legislative aides. And in that document, they talk about addressing substance use disorder and opioid epidemic. And the main categories within Medicare, Medicaid, and human services under consideration. And this all ties into what Jeffrey said, what Grace said, and what most of us in integrated care uh, hope will happen. So their number one theme is to focus to improve efforts to prevent opioid misuse and abuse by evaluating and considering tools such as facilitating prescriber and patient education on appropriate use of opioids enhancing drug management and protocols, evaluating access to and utilization of evidence-based non-pharmaceutical and or non-opioid treatment options for managing pain. Uh, Number two is evaluate and improve access to utilization of evidence-based care for patients to reduce and address prevalence of substance use disorders and opioid use disorders, including screening, assessment, and treatment and services. And then this is the cool part, improved services and systemic responses for families confronting substance use disorders and opioid use disorders, including extended family supports. And the efforts under this include serving parents and their children concurrently, testing services to preserve and reunify families, and supporting kin who assist families. And then the last part of the changes to Medicare and Medicaid looks at enhancing data sharing to promote appropriate healthcare interventions to strengthen program integrity. And these efforts include enhancing interaction between prescription drug monitoring and program utility and Medicare and Medicaid, improving program data and information to better address issues such as substance use and opioid use disorders, and increasing effective oversight of issues related to substance use and opioid use. So this, um, this released few days ago. So this hearing, I think is either happening this week or next week. So that's, that's my dig into, into what's happening uh, on the Hill.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And that, you know, I had not heard about that particular component. Um, that's really encouraging. Uh, where they're really looking to target the the family system essentially, um, mm-hmm. which is really one of the pieces that's been missing from um, a lot of the MAT and opioid use work, I think, because the uh, the effects are fairly. Um, you know, it's different than uh, uh, in this way. It's different than other chronic illnesses, right? Where it really does have some ripple effects across the family system in ways that make it that much more obvious, right? To, right. to include it. So it's great that the language is in there at least. That's awesome. Yeah, stuff. I was
3: very excited to see that. Uh, very specifically mentioned and talked about.
2: Um, I'd like to know where I can contribute to the Deepu George for Congress fund. This is so cool. You are doing the work. I mean, it's actually quite beautiful, right? Another aspect of our work is this kind of advocacy and social policy and social change and governmental affairs. And so I was just, I'm so proud and happy to learn about that aspect of your work as well, Deepu. It's beautiful. It's such empowerment.
3: Thank you. I, I feel like policy is where our future is. I mean, all of us doing meaningful work on the ground levels, um, somebody needs to be on top as well, sort of sort of uh, making the connection between the large level decisions that we make and how we decide on where resources go to the everyday clinical touches that we are able to provide in our medical settings. So um, I'm happy to serve in whatever way I can.
1: Well, here, here, yeah, policy and getting folks up that chain, I think it, it's it's certainly, I think, one of my sort of meta goals related to CFHA is just um, cultivating professionals within our ranks who, who have that underground experience, uh, but who also uh, can morph into those folks who can get into policy positions in, in government and in NGOs, uh, et cetera, to really as you said, sort of shepherd the the movement towards integrated care at a higher level. Um, to that end, uh, this is not my news item, but we'll put the link in the show notes. I just got, we just got on our listserv uh, notice from the Farley Center, the June Eugene Farley Center out of Colorado. They put together, uh, they're a policy center. Uh, they do a lot of health related stuff. Um, uh, some of it centered on integrated care and they put together a pretty nice website uh, we'll put the link in the show notes related to it um, that describes integrated care, why it's important, what policy uh, needs relative to integrated care exist. Um, so you can check that out as well. All right. Last web- but not least here. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, DP. I was just going to say that website is a great
3: resource. I absolutely love every single section. It breaks it down. It's very user-friendly. They have great videos. Um, And in fact, one of the ways that I have changed my pitch around how I talk about PCBH and IBH in our current system is using making a culture of whole health. And that actually comes from one of the earlier reports, I think two or three years ago. So if you haven't read the culture of whole health report, uh, it's a must read for people in the positions that we're in.
1: Perfect. So nice shout out to our friends at at the Farley Center. We've had a long relationship between CFHA and and those folks. All right. Last news item belongs to me, and this is going to sound slightly self-serving, because myself and uh, my colleagues, mostly my colleagues, uh, put together a research article and finally got it published. It took us only four years. (laughs) So... uh, the, the, the question, the research question is stated nicely in the title, does the primary care behavioral health model reduce emergency department visits? So this was an effort on the part of myself and my colleagues, Ron Prince, uh, out of the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin, and uh, Megan Fondau, um, my partner in crime at Access Community Health Centers, also in Madison, Wisconsin, and Ken Kushner, who is the Behavioral Health Director at the UW Department of Family Medicine. Um, we we wanted to kind of say, hey, we've done this PCBH work uh, in the community. We feel like we've been effective, particularly at helping people utilize care better. So we asked the question, does the model of care that we employ here, does it lead to reduction in emergency department uh, utilization? So, um, Long story short, this probably deserves its own podcast about research and how long it takes and and all the the intricacies of it. Long story short is um, as as and I I promised myself I wouldn't be one of these researchers like you know at the very best I said I wouldn't be one of those researchers that says well we need more research <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, However, I've learned a tremendous amount through the process of going through this research and, and learning about utilization research and how complex it is. And so the final answer is, because we didn't really design the study at the front end um, with uh, sufficient controls in place, we weren't able to definitively say, oh, yes, the PCBH model reduces emergency burden utilization. What we did see is that in one of the clinics, that actually turned out to be the the UW Department of Family Medicine clinic called the Wingra clinic, uh, one of the clinics did see an 11.3% decrease in the ratio of emergency department visits to primary care encounters. Uh, That was relative to a control site. Um, Our other two intervention clinics, which were actually the community health center clinics, did not see um, a statistically significant drop However, when you actually dig into the data and look at it, um, if you were sort of the CEO of the uh, Community Health Center Clinic, you would have been really happy with what you saw relative to your population and emergency department utilization. So although there wasn't statistical significance, um, from a very pragmatic fashion, for example, what we saw was really positive um, uh, with regard to this population. So anyway... Uh, like I said, it could deserve its own podcast. Uh, we've got too many more important topics to talk about. But you can find that article. We put in the show notes links. It's a health services research article. Many thanks to the editors there who were very patient with us and worked with us on getting this article out the door. Um, again, the authors are Serrano, myself, Prince, Fonda, and Kushner. And we'll put those in the show notes. So uh, we need more research like this. Uh, to demonstrate some of the downstream effects of what we're doing. Uh, but one thing that I'll conclude with is, um, although this is important research, um, you know one of the things we, we put in our conclusion was you know we're not going to validate integrated care or any of these models using uh, utilization research. Um, there are lots of other bigger reasons why we do this. This is just a rationale and or, or a piece of the rationale for why systems can, um, or how systems can look to this to support financially what's happening with the models. So anyway, enough about that article. That's our new section. How much section. cost
2: savings? How much cost savings are associated with uh, keeping somebody out of the emergency room? If Dolly.
1: Well, <laughs> that's a complicated question because the the costs that uh, emergency departments report uh, vary wildly, and we actually saw some of that cost data in our community. So you'd have one. Hospital, for the same thing, charged $300, one charged $1,000 or $1,200. So that's part of the complexity behind doing cost analysis, which we didn't do. We had cost data, but we looked at utilization. That yeah. that would be a, another research article for another day. Yeah, but it
2: certainly seems that uh, health plans would be interested in that, as would, um, you know, channeling the funding for more folks who can work on the preventive edge of... Uh, Uh, ER um, admission uh, uh, reduction. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Let's make a quick turn now to our main topic of the day. Deepu, lead us in to the big world of models of integrated care.
3: All right. So I don't think there's any logical, caring, intuitive person who would disagree that the head is separate from the body. I'm sure also with data people would agree that we have very well separated the head from the body in the way we have designed our current healthcare system. We have two kinds of doctors, two kinds of clinicians, two kinds of appointments, payment systems, and the list goes on. So the argument of creating a culture of whole health is not a big ask. What is a big ask in the service of this idea is the reorganizing, unlearning, and discovering as a team, system, and institutions about how to reflect this value of whole health. And how do we reflect that in every decision and behavior of the clinical team, to the operational team, to the financial team within that system? So if we watched integrated behavioral health teams or integrated care teams, would we see behaviors that will add up to this whole health approach? For example, would we see a primary care care clinician talk with a BHC or behavioral health consultant or provider about diabetes and hypertension Or would they mainly talk to them about only depression and anxiety? Would we see a medical assistant immediately asking a behavioral health consultant to go in for uncontrolled diabetes before the physician? Can we hear small curbside consults on behavioral interventions that a physician plans to try with the patient and just consult that and get a curbside opinion with the BHC? Will a patient experience a BHC closing their visit with checking on the patient's health maintenance list and scheduling their next immunization or pap smear? Will we then see operational and financial people beginning to change their perspectives on how they want to deliver healthcare and how they want to begin paying for it? And will they initiate conversations with the payers on new models of payment experiments? And in a few years, will we see patients in the waiting room asking for a BHC visit or a behavioral health visit to address their uncontrolled diabetes and bring in their family members along with them to get started on behavior activation. That's the dream that we are all running after of a whole health organization. But the challenge of integrated behavioral health or integrated care is that it's deceptively simple. I'm not sure how many of you pay attention to the design and technology around us. If you've seen latest smart TVs, they get thinner and in better shape and their remote controls get even more sleeker and much more uh, simple, but it is still sophisticated. Our old remote controls had like 55 buttons out of which we would use like five of them. So the enhanced uh, elegance and simplicity of these newer systems that we get to experience every day as a result of series of inventions, powerful technologies that have been reworked and reorganized to give us a new experience. And that is what we are attempting to do, I believe, when we are setting on a path of creating a culture of whole health. So in integrated behavioral health or integrated care to operate successfully, there are cultural, organizational, operational consistency to deliver simple yet comprehensive patient-specific care. In such a system, patients will begin to learn a new philosophy of care that even they themselves did not know that they needed. So as providers in integrated practice settings, it is often frustrating to not see a philosophy of whole health fully actualized. After all, while the understanding of a culture of whole health is not a big ask, The ask for an entirely new way of thinking, behaving, and relating is a big ask. And some of the frustrations that we feel as actors in the larger system, I think, um, relates to this bigger ask of continuously retraining and remapping and sort of resetting our North Star as we work through all the difficulties of merging a system and convincing them that whole health is a lot bigger than just giving people some things to do when they leave the clinic. So where do we stand in all of that? What has your experience been? And I know our interview really hits on that. So that's what I thought I can put forward to open up the discussion.
1: Yeah. And and thanks for that intro, Deepu. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's helpful to to think about this, particularly as we think about workforce development, uh, historically, um, I love history. So I'm always thinking about sort of how things develop and how things develop over time. And to get to that larger goal that you're talking about, um, you're absolutely right. There's a whole lot of change on the part of the professionals and on the part of patients that needs to Mm -hmm. occur for us to get there, right? But we have that larger vision. And um, this has been my argument for why models matter and why at least some degree of model fidelity or working towards pathways is really important because we're sort of at the training wheel stage of integrated care. We, We as professionals don't know how to act all the time um, in ways that make sense. And actually this brings to mind a story. Uh, uh, there was an email listserv chain. I won't say which organization it was, but some folks listening to the, uh, to the podcast will know which, which one it was. This, um, this, uh, professional put up on the listserv, Hey, I just got this job at this health center. And, um, They're asking me to uh, be interruptible, and so they're coming in on my sessions, and they want me to shorten my sessions to 30 minutes, and and they want me to be available whenever the physicians have a patient. So clearly, the clinic was thinking something along the lines of a PCBH model. This clinician was in a panic, having been hired for this job, apparently not having been told what the parameters of the job were and I felt very bad for him because he's obviously in a tough spot but his core training was telling him that this was all unethical um, that this was wrong what they were asking him to do those of us in integrated care were chiming in on the listserv actually there's a whole model built around that kind of work and there's ways to make this work you just have to reconfigure a whole set of behaviors right around this um, it, it's it's a lot of work. We have to respect that it takes a lot of work. And so I think of this this era as a sort of training wheel era, and we need models to do that, um, to, to guide the development of the workforce, to help build workers who at least can do some of the core fundamentals of what it takes to work, work and operate well in a primary care environment. Um, and that's probably my perspective. Cause I've done so much training and implementation work um, I'm sure you guys can comment as well as you take on students and other things, how important it is to be able to really concretely say, hey, this is what's expected of you as an integrated care professional that's different.
0: I was just thinking, you mentioned students, and I was thinking about a conversation I had with one of my supervisees yesterday of she was, And she's at about the midpoint of her practical experience. And she said, kind of had this question that a lot of my interns come up with at some point. And she's like, what am I actually doing? How am I actually helping people? And what I had to talk to her about is if your expectation is that you're going to fit a 50 minute traditional therapy into 15 minute encounter that you're going to see somebody maybe once, then you're going to be really disappointed and no, you're not going to feel like you're helping anyone. And so part of that shift and part of that obstacle, I think, is changing our expectations. And it was really helpful to be able to speak to her about models and way of practicing and that even the goal, not just the structure, is different, but some of the goals and the objection objectives are different.
1: Yeah, and even the the interesting thing is that this cuts across models. Uh, so if you look at the collaborative care model, so um, we, we're throwing around these terms. We probably should, on some level, oper- operationalize these for folks who are listening that don't know these. But in, in, in a collaborative care model, you have basically a consulting psychiatrist, a registry, and a care manager, just at a very basic description level. And you have this panel of patients, usually depression, but sometimes depression and cardiovascular disease that are being monitored uh, using this registry. Uh, There are follow-up phone calls. There's in-clinic visits with the care manager. There's sometimes brief interventions being applied. Um, And then the consulting psychiatrist is doing some monitoring, um, assisting the primary care providers, right? So, So that model, right, very different than the PCBH model that has different goals, Um, It's more generalist in nature, and you're seeing patients in and out of exam rooms in 15 to 30 minute visits, working right alongside the team across a variety of issues, right? Different models. But actually, when you look at the implementation issues, they're very similar. So the folks over at the AIM Center have written some research on that, which is really interesting uh, about their perspective of, of implementation. And guess what? It comes down a lot to culture to training effectively and setting expectations, because not every psychiatrist does well as a consulting psychiatrist, it turns out. Those are not skills that are necessarily taught um, or cultivated in their training. Just like for a psychologist or a social worker or LMFT, their base training doesn't necessarily prepare them for working in a PCBH model um, or in an expert model. And that core question of how are we to be, who are we to be as professionals, becomes a core question. Now, I think once you get into the work, um, I think you begin to expand your professional identity, even beyond the model itself, and, and you don't sort of need the training wheels as much. But the model is important to provide those training wheels to guide you, especially as you develop your professional identity early on, beyond what you had just coming right out of, right out of grad school. So, um, I, I think I think that's just a, an important thing to remember about the models themselves.
2: I just was going to add, you know, this this idea about the workforce and workforce preparation, um, and the important role of coach. Um, I, I work as a practice transformation coach bringing triads of behavioral health and nurse care managers and care coordinators and community health workers quadrat into primary care and actually reverse as well into behavioral health. And um, there are a lot of competencies that really uh, need shepherding and patience and support and encouragement and cheerleading and resources. And um, if people want to look at our website, bhintegration.com we've shared a lot of the materials there that can really raise your game, right? Whether it's motivational interviewing or health literacy or really putting together a standardized case review. Um, so the good news is that we live in a time of uh, of uh, decreasing drought of uh, resources and strategies and approaches, and yet there is so much uh, work to do. But, but to do it in, in the context of a supportive relationship, I think really flows then to the relationship between the clinicians and the patients and the care they receive. I think so,
3: this idea of coaching and like this constant reminder to come back to certain things because, you know, as we all know, behavior change is hard. It's not uh, A A to B sort of linear segment, right? It is multiple attempts and shoring up different skills and recognizing different triggers and sort of shaping your way into it. I think one of the ways that I think about models is just like in, you know, in traditional psychotherapy, You have your schools of thought and the techniques within the different schools of thought. So as an earlier trainee, I was so fascinated by techniques, but not really understanding the deeper architecture that holds the techniques together. So, you know, I'm very excited about, uh, let's say, in, in family therapy, they're like paradoxical injunction or whatever, like these crazy techniques that they would use, but not really understanding their overall articulation or uh, within uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness and those kind of diffusion kind of techniques are great, but it makes so much better sense when you employ it with a fuller understanding of why you would do such a thing. And once you do it, what kind of effects can you expect? Um, and I think knowing your model and art- being able to articulate it to your colleagues, your patients. Uh, to system administrators and people who really uh, question or are supportive of your work is very important. I think if you are woken up at 3.30 a.m. in the morning, you should be able to spell out what you do, what your model is, what your role is, and how that helps the primary care team and the patients and the medical assistants without missing a beat. Uh, And I think that's the level of competency that some of us need, because we are actors with training wheels in a system that's often not sure where they're going.
1: Absolutely, yeah, that's a great point. Um, it, you know, even, even in settings where, I've done a lot of uh, uh, consultation work just like Jeffrey has as well, and even in settings that have been resistant to, uh, to, to changing towards a more integrated model, right? Um, I still encourage them, look, at the very least, define what you're currently doing. Just make Mm -hmm. it clear. So if you're doing co-located specialty mental health, you want to do the best possible co-located specialty mental health and define what that means, what your role is relative to the services that the clinic provides, relative to the professionals and how they interact or don't interact. Because you have to own who you are before you change, before you move forward. And so own it. If you, this is if you're doing things that are not integrated, own that you're not doing things that are, that are integrated. Own it, and that becomes a starting place for you to begin to work towards larger goals of creating a team- based environment. But you've got to start off from some form of of a clear definition of who you are, what you're doing, and, also what you're trying to achieve, which is really the main right. distinction between the models. Um, I gave a talk at last CFHA that a lot of people uh, came up to me about afterwards, I think because this, I talked about the enmity that has sometimes existed, the com- competition between models of care and people's perspectives. And- you know, through my experience on the ground and in doing coaching, it's become clear to me, look, these models are not in act- any actual competition other than in our own heads. Uh, they, they, they exist for specific reasons, and they do really good right. jobs at the things that they're intended to do. Um, but you can't take a, you know, a screwdriver and complain that it's not really any good for nails. You know, it's a screwdriver. And it's the same with all of these models. I have a deep appreciation for, you know, PCBH, collaborative care, SBIRT, um, some of the emerging complex patient work and the models that are emerging out of the work that Jeffrey and others are doing um, uh, for uh, other population-based models. These models do really well because they have purposes. But clinics have to define what those purposes are relative to their goals, their organizational goals. And sometimes in a coaching relationship, that's what we end up doing. It's helping them clarify what they want. Yeah.
3: There is a book uh, that I'm reminded of, Kurt Kaufman and Catherine Sorensen. They have a book called Culture Eats Strategy for Lunch. Um, and so if your strategy is working towards some form of an integrated behavioral health model or integrated care model, you really want to be mindful of the surrounding support systems and the norms that will welcome that and play to those strengths. And so that's where defining and articulating repeatedly what you're attempting to do in line with the larger organization is a big political win. Um, And you may have to repeat it. 20 times because, you know, I've had residents who've been with me for three years. And even after three years, uh, they uh, have some, a sense of awe when we talk about some basic things like uh, how to introduce a behavioral health consultant, you know, <laughs> um, or a simpler task. Uh, but I, I think part of my learning has been to never get tired of explaining who we are and what we do.
1: Yeah. So this is a robust and rich conversation. Um, We can go on forever on it. Unfortunately, we are uh, needing to move on to the interview uh, that I have with Joan Fleischman, which flows nicely from our conversation. Joan Fleischman was a... Uh, Behavioral Health Clinical and Research Director at Oregon Health and Science University up in uh, Oregon. And she brings a really unique perspective that I'm excited to to bring to you all today. Um, She's the director of a program that's really grown to be a large, mature program over the last seven years. And she's did some reflecting with me on uh, what that means for her professionally today. And we're going to carry over this conversation in future podcasts to other topics like um, sort of uh, sustainability of this work and aspects of burnout, etc. cetera. Um, and and uh, so Joan's done some good reflection that'll be a springboard for future conversations. So this is my interview today with Joan Fleischman. What can you tell... Uh, especially young folks out there who are thinking about a career in PCBH or maybe other directors out there who are in the middle of what you have uh, built uh, that, that sort of are those insights from your experience that are crucial to making this sustainable and keeping this fun.
4: Sure. Yeah, I mean, maybe what would help would be for me to share a little bit about my story, which was that I went to graduate school, I got my PsyD, I did an internship in an inpatient medical hospital, and I knew that inpatient wasn't my place, but I really, really enjoyed working within a multidisciplinary team in a medical setting. And then I had the opportunity to do a two-year fellowship training in primary care psychology, and that's really where I started to establish mentorships. And so I don't necessarily think you need to go and do a specialized training fellowship or postdoc in this. But I think the the biggest piece of what I learned was really establishing those mentorships early on, finding people who are interested in supporting you, who are experts in this work and who um, who you can go to for guidance around um What do they think your strengths are? Where do they see you in a year, five years, 10 years? Um, Because I actually took a lot of guidance from my mentors um, around their belief in what I could actually do. Um, I was like, oh, just go be a BHC, (laughs) Um, come back to Oregon, be a BHC, see clients and patients and be a clinician. And they were like, no, you can do much more than that. Um, and so go for it, don't be afraid. Um, so a big, a big thing that I, I think that I would suggest for you know, think people thinking about making a career out of this or really just starting out is establishing mentorship. Um, and figuring out kind of where you're, there's a lot of models out there, right? There's a lot of models for how to do, um, how to integrate behavioral health into primary care there's the collaborative care model, there's the PCBH model, there's several others. So thinking about what fits for you in kind of your philosophical tenets, where you come from as a, a clinician, what fits for your theoretical orientation, because you're going to have to maintain this level of passion about what you do, you're going to be pitching your ideas to lots of people, and you're going to be recruiting and building a team. And so you really have to believe in what you uh are doing and so that would be my you know kind of my thoughts on that
1: yeah yeah now you know the other key piece there that's uh, probably the, your mentors saw in you was a leadership ability right and another thing we have talked about in the past is how there's not a lot of training for that you know you were not necessarily yeah. trained or prepared for that and the clinics that we go to don't necessarily. Um, Uh, have structures for that either, but we're thrown into stuff. So first, I want you to tell the audience out there your story at your clinic and how it's grown and what you're doing right now there. And then talk a little bit about being a leader, you know, thrown into that role and trying to figure stuff out as you go.
4: So um, I came to uh, OHSU, um, which is a large medical, academic medical center. Um, We have a medical school and a school of nursing, a school of public health. It's huge here. And I came to family medicine here um, as a part of an initiative to actually formalize a piecemeal uh, behavioral health program. They had one behavioral health provider in a couple of the clinics. They were all doing different things and they knew that it was time to standardize. So I came in Um, kind of did a needs assessment, um, went and got to know the individual clinicians and the individual practices, and then went to leadership and said, you know, what's your vision? Um, And luckily it aligned with my vision, which I think is why they hired me. (laughs) And um, I started with we really focused on building the model in one clinic. We have a federally qualified health center here um, that already had some infrastructure from the federal funding that it receives um, to build out a, a more integrated model. So we started with just piloting imbe- embedding one. First of all, we had to go from the switch of um, calling all of our mental health clinicians social workers, which has been uh, a process. Um, and now switching to calling our service behavioral health and we're behavioral health providers. So we embedded just one person in one care team and did a PDSA pilot and um, everyone involved loved it. We got good feedback from patients, from providers and from the BH um, provider. So we spread that from one team to the entire clinic. We have four teams here. Um, and then from there, we started, once there was kind of a foundation of what our model was in one clinic, we started to spread it across our clinics. So, and, and that was, it's a growing process because once a clinic has experienced uh, having a mental health provider who maybe isn't doing behavioral health and more of like a co-located mental health model, there's a retraining period where you're kind of retraining, yeah, uh, you're nodding because we've all experienced this. <laughs> um, so we went to spread the model across our, at that time, three other clinics. And and it was a slow process of orienting the clinic and the providers, hiring, finding the right people, which is a whole nother sidebar of how you do that. Um, training, which is a huge part of what I did when I first got here, just hiring and training And um, we recently have taken on two more clinics. Our program has expanded uh, the family medicine department. And now we have six clinics and we have, um, we have 23 staff members across our six clinics um, doing lots of different things. We're very involved in the medication assisted treatment programs in two of our clinics. We have a trauma informed care initiative that we're rolling out. So once we got our, um, kind of basic infrastructure. I really think about hi- Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like first you need the staff, then you need to train the staff, then you need to to make this uh, uh, inspiring and sustainable work for your staff. Then they, then your staff and your leadership can start to take on these bigger projects like trauma informed care or screening for social determinants of health or some of these, these overarching goals that I think our department is supportive of. So does that answer your question about?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So so how many staff do you have right now?
4: So we have 23 staff. Um, not all of them are clinical staff. So we have, um, most of our behavioral health consultants are licensed clinical social workers. We have a few psychologists and we, um, We have this role we've developed called Behavioral Health Resource Specialist. And it's kind of like a community health worker role where we realized a lot of our BHCs were doing a lot of connecting people with community resources, helping people navigate the system. And so we created a role that you don't necessarily need to have a clinical degree for, um, but, but can help patients kind of really connect to all of the other parts that aren't necessarily health behavior change, coaching, um, addressing mental health problems, those kind of things. So, and then we, um, I'm missing something. Of course we have a very large family medicine residency. So we also have, um, one of our, um, faculty who does majority, the most of her job is the residency curriculum. So we're also training residents, and on top on top of all this, this is why I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off. Is we have a very robust training program. We train six um, MSW students every year and uh, six uh, doctoral level psychology students every year. So,
1: yeah. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I just resonate so deeply with that whole experience. So here's a piece that uh, I know from personal experience uh, is, is, was a challenge for me as a director of a behavioral health program, and that's the sustainability piece,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, personally. Mm-hmm. Because it's, this is a hard lift. So uh, first, can you talk a little bit about the hard lift, sort of the personal toll that it can take on a leader, building this kind of a program from scratch, um, and then getting to where you are now, and sort of you know figuring things out, but also wondering, huh, I wonder what's next? How do you keep this going and make this satisfying?
4: yeah I think that's such an important question, especially for people who have been kind of um I think I've been a little bit lost in the trenches. I mean, all of this is a lot of work, and I'm talking with my colleagues who are in this kind of same place where they've spent a lot of time building a program it's it continues to grow and and it's not a bur- a feeling of burnout that I'm experiencing, but it's a feeling of like yeah, where do you go next? Um, and I think, you know, for me, uh, I have started to look at, you know, you asked, um, in some of the questions you asked prior to this conversation, talking about like, what's it been like to be a woman? What's your experience of being a woman in this position? Are you a mom? Um, and I think what's interesting is I'm not a mom and, um, and so I have really like thrown myself into this work, and I think that's how I probably worked way too much. <laughs> and um, in the last three and a half years, and I think that's how I've gotten uh, this program this far in such a short amount of time, is that you know I look at my friends who are our moms who have families, um, and there the it's there's a bigger struggle that I have not had to. Um, experience. And I think that would be a whole podcast or a whole interview about that, um, really. And how do you maintain a leadership role and maintain a family? Um, so, I mean, I think the other thing is it can be really lonely at the top. Um, who are your peers? Who do you talk to? Who do you go to when there's a personnel issue and you want to talk through what to do? So you have to find who are your peers in your organization? If you don't have them in your organization, then reaching out and, and finding peers across your region, in your state, in your city. Um, because oftentimes, I, am, I was the only psychologist in a department of 500 um, until last year. So people don't necessarily understand what a psychologist is or what your skill set is, what your training is. Sometimes I have to remind them it is a terminal degree. Um, <laughs> um, and, and so there's a lot of orienting to your skill set, who you are, what you do, what is behavioral health. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of looking at my notes because I, I kind of I had a lot of different thoughts about this. But it really has been a transformative process for me. I've learned how to be a leader I think I started out with the, the approach of, like, I'm, I'm a disruptor. I'm a, I'm a change agent, agent and I'm going to go in there and just tell them what I need. And I've pulled back to that the kind of the approach of I'm a good listener, and um, I need to listen to what's important to my stakeholders. First, I need to identify the stakeholders. But I need to listen to what's important to my stakeholders, and I need to figure out how we align. Together, and I spent a lot of a lot of days, a lot of months, being angry at the lack of resources for behavioral health, and the lack of support, and lack of understanding, the lack of value. But the reality is, um, there has been support. It just takes a lot of um, conversations about understanding each other and and finding a way to align.
1: Um, and. Just to highlight a couple of the key points that you made there, because there's there's one half where, yeah, you have to learn how to listen to your stakeholders to build um, an understanding of where you're in is going to be, right, as you're developing a a program and where the leverage points are in relationships and in uh, clinic strategic plan, et cetera. So that's the one part of leadership that you have to develop but I think the other piece as well that um, a lot more uh, directors in your position, in particular, are feeling now being in this position for, you know, more than just a few years, is uh, the ability to be listened to by peers, mm. to be supported, to be heard, right, to be valued, um, and and I, I I imagine at this point you get some of that from your your peers now, because they understand you, right? Your other folks on senior leadership understand you and get you and, and know you better, um, so it's probably a little easier now. Um, but at the beginning, you know, your point about it being a lonely place is very appropriate. I mean, that, that's the reality of the situation, and can sort of working through that can be difficult. Um, are there things that you did that worked better than others to Kind of work through that feeling of, you know, those moments of anger when you're like, you know, angry because something you proposed just didn't quite fall on listening ears or, or just, you know, those exhausting long days when you went home and you're like, oh my goodness, there's so much work to do. Is there something that worked better than others to kind of work through that?
4: I think um, being able to count wins as anything can be a win in terms of, it doesn't have to be like, a big thing trying to identify the small wins um, and also trying to what have worked i'm gonna think about that because um i mean i I, <laughs> I mean there have been i have had several calls with my mentors where I'm like okay i feel like i'm hitting a brick wall what do i do and i think some of the answers have been first of all don't Internalize it. It's nothing wrong with you, right? It's not because you're a bad leader or because uh, there's you have a defect of some sort. It's which is my tendency, right? It's it's you know we are still uh, fighting an uphill battle and that it's slow and change in in big organizations. We're talking about our organization has seventeen thousand employees, huge take they're like, you know, super slow. Everything is super slow. And so being patient and having like a long term game plan. Um, So I, you know, everyone talks about self care. I think I found a way to work out three to four times a week, even if I was doing my email on the elliptical for an hour, which my friends will tell you, they'll come into the gym and see me like typing away on my phone. Um, I was getting, I was taking care of myself. I've always prioritized that. Um, and and making sure that I had a good personal support system um, and making sure that I was finding places to uh, decompress and and talk about the challenges. I, I think the worst thing we can do for ourselves is to suffer in this challenge of going against the grain, um, alone and so yeah it's a lot about community
1: yeah. um which i think is the answer to a lot of things in life don't go <laughs> through it by yourself um i think that's that's great advice and and it is going to be personalized right i mean there's no way i'm going to be doing email on a treadmill um more power to you for that that is some multitasking right there. elliptical oh, elliptical well still I, 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 I still couldn't do that I, yeah there's no way <laughs> I'm doing. that. Um, but but you know you found you found a way through and mm. have built an impressive program that has touched a lot of lives. So I'm going to ask you a question now that that I don't know I, mean, I I doubt you have the answer to it but I'm curious about your emerging thoughts in this area, right? So so this role that you've filled, you've gotten to this point, you've built this program up it's there you're now starting to ask, well what's next? You know, how do I keep this fun? What are your Emerging thoughts in that area about keeping this fun for you, and then also keeping it fun for your staff and the people that you've brought up into this. What what are some of your thoughts, you know, in that this next sort of phase for you?
4: Yeah, so um, looking for opportunities to exercise some of your other strengths that maybe aren't um, primary care behavioral health related. So um, I have recently started. I took a storytelling class. Uh, and I've really been thinking about how to how to incorporate that into my work, and how do I incorporate that into the times that I talk to my team or when I write an email, um, because story is such a, a powerful medium to to um, effect change. And um, looking for opportunities. so I I've recently discovered I love writing, creative writing right? So looking for an opportunity, I was invited to write a blog about trauma-informed care and interpersonal neurobiology. I was like, okay, that's crazy. Uh, Sure. But I I wrote a story. Um, And I think finding ways to invite creativity into our work, whether that's um, uh, with your team, you know, um, inspiring your team to bring creativity into their daily work, Um, and thinking about how we can, um, kind of some of the innovative processes that I think we're all trying out. Um, what is, like, what is inspiring about them? What gets our, what gets us excited? Um, and that's a personal question. Everyone has their own reason for doing this work. And so inspiring maybe that question with your team, why do you do this work? Um, what keeps you going? What you know, asking I asked my leadership team yesterday, what makes a good day? What, you know, like when you get in your car at the end of the day or you get on the bus at the end of the day, you're like, that was such a good day. What about that day? Can we like think about what makes us have a good day? Um and this I I have to add this is there's also a piece of um being willing to be vulnerable, um, and share uh, your humanness, um, and build, like go back to that community. But being able to um, have a team, I go back to team because you. It's just, this every, There's a lot of people out there doing this by themselves, mm-hmm. and that's. It's just we're not meant to do this work by ourselves. So I found opening up and saying, hey, even when I called you, right? Like saying like, I don't know where I'm going next. Um, I don't, you know, I, I might need some help with this professional development piece. Um, that's taking a risk, that's showing that, you know, I don't know everything. And, and so I think that would be the, you know, the piece that I would encourage people to, to be humble and to be vulnerable. Uh, a little bit and kind of bring some humanness to the leadership role.
1: I think that's, uh, outstanding advice. (laughs) Um, yeah, absolutely. Cause I think part of what makes, uh, leadership difficult is if you isolate yourself in a cocoon of having to know everything, be on top of everything, know exactly where everything's going, um, and sort of hide those parts of yourself that are Mm -hmm. real that everybody shares, because everybody doesn't know where, where things are going. You don't have a perfect sense of that, especially in this area, because it's all emerging. And uh, so, so to incorporate that sense of vulnerability, that realness, um, and um, and then tie that in to passion and mission, and, and be able to allow your teammates to personalize that, I think uh, is just a huge, huge benefit and so I, I think that makes a lot of uh, just a lot of sense that it goes does go back to team, but to have team, you need that sense of vulnerability, you need that sense of realness to everyone, including the leader of the team. And um, so I think that's outstanding uh, advice for folks. So I'm looking forward to the stories that you, uh, end up creating um, and and writing. Um, love to get you to write some stuff for us. But,
4: uh, <laughs> oh, it's a newfound passion. So <laughs> yes. So
1: so just uh, as a as a weird aside question. So you you've found this love of creative writing. What are you writing about these days?
4: Um. Well, the, this uh, blog about uh, trauma informed care and um, interpersonal neurobiology kind of struck my my fancy, Um, you know, a lot of our work, my work in this last year has been focused on our medication assisted treatment um, for opioid use disorder. So I've been writing about um, kind of uh, the continued work that we're doing in this field around deconstructing the stigma around substance use disorders and particularly around heroin use. and I've been thinking a lot about how to tell that story. How do you tell the story of how behavioral health is so integral in treating those conditions in our primary care settings? Um, through a patient story, or through a provider story, or through the community's story. Um, I'm writing about that, and um, I think that I've also been writing about how I got into this work, like truly why do I do this work and recently had the biggest probably epiphany, maybe in my life (laughs) of really truly I do this work because I needed behavioral health as a child. I needed someone to be looking at the underlying, uh, underlying problems or conditions or kind of reasons for my issues as a kid um, instead I got all my symptoms treated separately at different specialists and um, and really really needed someone who was looking at the comprehensive total picture looking at my family and you know I never realized that that it really this comes from a very deep personal place of why I chose to do this work um, so I've been writing about that
1: that's awesome stuff I look forward to if you ever, uh, publish this stuff. I look forward to <laughs> reading it. So that's terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our thanks to Joan Fleischman for, uh, giving us that time. Um, we can also put in the show notes, she wrote a great blog post, uh, on trauma-informed care, another sort of passion of hers. Um, so we'll put that one in the show notes as well. So, uh, Guys, just your quick responses before we close out for the day today about, um, you know, just behavioral health directors, the positions they find themselves in, in these new positions, sometimes isolated professionally within their organizations, like Joan has found herself at times. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts about this this unique cohort?
0: I love the way that she described that experience. So I think it's it's definitely true for people in director roles because as she said it can be lonely at the top but it's true a lot for a lot of behavioral health uh people that are working in our field because deep spoke at the very beginning about how you know traditionally there have been two systems and two types of appointments and two types of settings and for integration we're behavioral health going into the medical setting uh, you know for the most part of course there's reverse integration as well but most of the people I think that are doing this work are coming out of their traditional environment and going into some a different culture and that's another future show talk that that we've talked about some of bridging those culture gaps between behavioral health and medicine Um, but I just I I just want to echo what she said about finding your people and finding those um, colleagues and friends and champions that you can commune with in this work that we're doing I thought that was just so powerful.
2: To me, it's also very resonant of um, actually, I just heard Brene Brown speak uh, at uh, National, um, at at NatCon, you know, and and she's talking about these same issues, right? The quest for true belonging and the courage to stand alone. How do we find our voice? How do we, you know, withstand, you know, withering intensity of pushing a cultural shift? Um, How do we um, sort of find humor and elegance in taking on resistance? And how do we always keep our eyes on the prize of improving health care um, for all of our patients, particularly the vulnerable? So, so that mission-driven rocket fuel for the challenging valleys through which we walk, I think, is um, essential. And I think Joan really inspires us to to think and think again about this. Uh, personally, I
3: it was therapeutic for me to listen to that because uh, we are at a position within our school of medicine where um, integrated behavioral health is growing and I'm really figuring out what my role is in that and leading that effort. In fact, um, there is a, a more operational role that I think I will take on. And so I've been putting out feelers with national leaders who are in the field to really talk to them and find out, Hey, what should that job description be? And, What should be my rights and privileges within that role? And who should I have access to? Because I want to set the story up for success as much as I can. That includes me and the system. And and most importantly, the patients that we serve on a daily basis. So it was reaffirming to recognize that the the steps that I take that often feels lonely, that is going to be lonely. um, And it was reaffirming to hear that some of the decisions that i'll have to make i'm actually making those decisions in concert with people who have done this before and so i don't have to be completely alone but in in my system i should have the courage to stand alone while i continue my quest to belong with the national uh, colleagues that we are also privileged to be part of
1: yeah and uh as we often say this is a another podcast topic of its own for another day we'll certainly develop these themes so important this idea of connectivity i often describe cfha as being the three c's right um and the first c is really community and connection um the second c is we provide consultation we provide great content but really the heart and soul of who we are is about connection. And uh, for folks like Joan, uh, I think we exist for folks like Joan and for folks like us here around. Uh, The idea that um, as we build out this integrated care vision, um, we need to do it together and we can cannot do it in isolation. So I am grateful to have such a great team to come back to every month. Thank you guys, did an awesome job today as usual. uh, Thank you to listeners out there as well. As is our practice, we have a great sort of uh, exit blessing for you today, which Deepu is going to take us out on. Um, for the, the team, I'm Dr. Naftali Serrano. I'm going to let you hear Deepu's, jo- uh, Deepu's voice on the way out. Thanks so much for joining us today. Deepu, take it away.
3: All right. This is a traditional Franciscan blessing that I've adapted for all of us, and here it goes. May the spirit bless us with discomfort at easy answers, half truths and superficial relationships so that we may live deep within our hearts. May the spirit bless us with anger at injustice, oppression and exploitation of people so that we may work for justice, freedom and peace. And may the spirit bless us with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, hunger, and war so that we may reach out our hands to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may the spirit bless us with enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in this world so that we can do what others claim cannot be done to bring justice and kindness to all our children and the poor.
1: Thanks so much, guys. We'll talk again next month.